such an encouragement, seeing of the rich truth of our Lord. That's what we'll continue to look at today in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and make your way there. It's a privilege and joy for me to be able to fill the pulpit for Pastor Mark. He is here this morning, if you saw him, but he was out of town all week for a, a conference and lots of ministry meetings out in California and did not return until 6 o'clock last night. So it should come as a great encouragement to you that uh, our, our pastor would not seek to uh, give you a message that he started at 6, six o'clock on Saturday night for Sunday morning. But, uh, such a joy for me to be able to, to bring the scripture to bear this morning and uh, a joy to hear all of your singing. When my wife and I were dating, I lived and worked at a Christian camp in, in North Carolina, the western part of the state where there is some nice mountains, and from time to time, loved the, uh, the hobby of, of doing some rock climbing. And the rock climbing that I did was always wearing a harness and having a, a safety rope or a, an overhead rope that was always there to catch you if you were to fall. Sometimes you'd have uh, someone holding that rope where if you were to fall, that person would catch you or a device that would, would do the catching. And it was relatively not, not very dangerous. You hear rock climbing, you think of great danger. In that context, it was not so much so. We did a, another form of rock climbing that was called bouldering. And this was where you were not trying to scale vertically up a, a face of a, a, a rock wall, but rather you were trying to scale it horizontally. So you're only going somewhere between five and seven feet off the ground and trying to follow holds and put your foot in certain places and hand in others and go across horizontally. And surprisingly, we would often get more injured from the bouldering at a a low distance or relatively low elevation off of the ground than we would off of the, uh, the climbing much taller walls. Why would that be? It was because of the safety rope. There was something there that would securely hold us if we were to fall compared to even falling only a couple of feet. We could get a few scrapes or injuries. There's another form of rock climbing that I've never ventured to, to try, nor do I plan to. It is called free soloing. This is where certain uh, adrenaline enthusiasts, rock climbers, would seek to scale an entire vertical rock face and do so without the aid of any safety equipment, with no harness, no safety rope, uh, no line ahead of them, just their hands, a chalk bag, and some climbing shoes, and they would seek to scale that entire rock face. The margin for error here is unbelievable. It is a, a pass-fail once you are not too far off of the ground. In 2017, a, a climber free-soloed El Capitan in, in Yosemite, which is over 3,000 feet high, which is essentially like a, a vertical slab of granite sitting there. And this man scaled this 3,000 feet with nothing but his, his chalk bag climbing up to keep his hands dry. This is incredibly dangerous, and I just think our exhortation of, of clinging, holding fast our confession in, in light of this illustration of, of clinging to that rock wall, just consider for that individual free soloing this mountain, clinging to that mountain is his highest priority. Why is that? Because life is on the line. If he lets go, his life is at stake. And we consider the imperative in our passage today in Hebrews 4.14 is that we would cling to our confession of Christ. It is imperative that we cling to Christ, that we hold fast our confession. Eternal life depends upon our clinging to Christ. Yet, 
The Lord does not suppose that we possess all the strength and personal resolve to never let go of Christ. It is not supposed that it is dependent solely upon your own personal strength. Pastor John Anderson says here, we have to cling. We must cling. Yet we have no personal ability to cling. Therefore, we have to come to him for grace. This is why we so desperately need a great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness and gives us access to the throne of grace because it is only by our great high priest that we can steadfastly cling to our confession, that we can hold on to that confession without letting go. It is only because of the work of our great high priest. The only reason that any believer can persevere is not because some have a greater resolve and we can uh, muster up the own personal steadfastness to, to never waver in faith. It is rather because we have this great high priest who is superior to all others, who is able to sympathize with us and offer us the necessary mercy and grace that gives us timely help. That is why we're able to fulfill this exhortation to us to cling that's what we will learn in the passage ahead of us in hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 to 16 we will see three reasons that we must cling to our confession we'll get to that outline in a few minutes but just to set our stage in the book of hebrews we're entering what i would consider the third major section in the book of hebrews uh, it goes from chapter 4.14 through chapter 7, and it focuses on Christ as our high priest. He is greater than Aaron, greater than anyone in the, the Levitical priesthood. Our passage is a transition looking back to the exhortation in 3.7 to not harden our hearts, but to be diligent to enter God's rest. And looking forward to 5.11 through 6.12, that we must not grow dull of hearing. We must not have lazy ears, spiritually speaking, but press on to maturity. And right in between these two warning passages, we have this passage of profound comfort. The book of Hebrews has five serious warnings given to these believers who are tempted to turn away from Christ. And in my past two times in the pulpit, I actually walked through the first two warning passages. The first one was in chapter 2, 1 to 4, uh, the, the warning that we would pay even more close attention to Christ, lest we drift away. And then the last one we looked at uh, was Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 11, the warning that we would not harden our hearts. Now, I want to take you to what's not a warning passage, but rather is a passage of profound comfort for those that are striving. For those that are heeding the warnings of the scripture, there is comfort poured out on us. Martin Luther expresses his joy in this passage by saying, After terrifying us, the author now comforts us. After pouring wine in our wound, he now pours oil. I don't think Luther's words are inappropriate when he says, After terrifying us, because there is an appropriate terror or fear that comes in warnings of Scripture. Because we look at those warnings and we all acknowledge there are times of weakness when I don't pay even much closer attention to Christ, like chapter 2 told us. There are times when I am hardening my heart to the Word, like chapter 3 would warn us against. I, I don't want to retread how to approach all these warnings, but I, I do want to remind you that the warnings of Scripture are not meant to cause us to doubt our salvation. 
The, the warnings that the scripture brings are, are not a call for believers that are striving in faith to doubt whether or not they're truly in the Lord, but rather a call for self-assessment. Are, am I making spiritual progress or am I regressing in unbelief? Warnings serve to stir believers up to diligent striving. That's how what these warnings serve to do for us is stir us up to diligent striving. I was tempted to go on uh, to the next warning passage in the book of Hebrews uh, this morning, and I think it would have been richly edifying, but I thought it was crucial for us in light of all the warnings of scripture to see the blessed comfort that comes for those that are striving here in our passage. One commentator commented the fear of final failure, the consciousness of weakness and partial failure, turn the thoughts again to the mediator. I I think that's exactly right. Whenever we see these warnings, we do see our failures. We see our weakness. And when we see our weakness, those of us who are in the Lord looking to him by faith, we set our hearts and minds on our mediator. The only reason that weak sinners like us can cling to that rock wall is because of our great high priest. That is what this passage seeks to encourage our hearts in. If you've been around Saving Grace for much time at all, you've noticed that we don't want to pull any punches when it comes to feeling the conviction that the Scripture brings. We, we want the Scripture to identify sin in our hearts so that we rightly address it and turn away from it. And at the same time, we, we want the scripture to do all that the Lord says it'll do in, in teaching us, reproving us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. And in the Lord's marvelous wisdom, he has not only given scripture that brings great conviction of our weakness, he's given great promises that bring comfort in the midst of our striving. So I want to emphasize that at the forefront of this passage, that the profound comfort that is given here is given for believers, not for those that are living in passivity or unbelief. The comfort promised to the believer comes within a call to diligence. This is what we must understand. Diligent striving is accompanied by the Lord's comfort. If you are striving in the Lord, I want you to feel the blessing of the Lord's comfort that's poured out on the one who is striving in humble faith, not in sinless perfection, but rather in in consistent direction of humility and pursuing the Lord in faith. The comfort is not offered to those who refuse to strive, but rather we are comforted in the midst of our striving. With that, let's look at our passage. Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Follow along as I read. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here the exhortation for us is at the end of verse 14. The, the driving command of this passage at the end of verse 14 is this, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. This is the, the holding fast or grasping something in total embrace. This is the illustration of that rock wall that we must hold on to because life depends upon it. 
The author exhorts himself and his readers together as he says, let us hold fast. This is just an an imperative where the the author is uniting himself with those that are hearing him and, and saying, I have already determined this course of action. Come and join me in this pursuit. Let us hold fast our confession. It's a call for a a firm grip, a steadfast hold on our confession. What is this confession? It is describing both the inward belief in the heart, the the heart of faith, and the outward actions that accompany it. So whenever you think, let us hold fast to our confession, it's not just saying we have to, uh, to be rock solid about some doctrinal convictions, live however you want, but hold these doctrine convictions. No, rather, it is a inward belief in the truth that is reflected through a life of godly living. Confession uh, here includes the internal faith and the external actions. And the important part of this confession is not what is our confession, as though it is a, a list of things we must believe. It is who is our confession. So when we're exhorted, let us hold fast our confession. Let us cling to our confession. We're talking about clinging to Christ, his person and his work. He is our great high priest. We cling to Christ. That's what we must cling to. Our passage is going to richly supply us with three reasons that we must cling to our confession. And we'll see the first one in verse 14. It is the supremacy of our high priest. We must cling to our confession because of the supremacy of our high priest. Get verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest. Now, the author has already brought up the fact that believers have a high priest back in chapter 3, verse 1. Look over there with me, if you will. In 3 1, the author has just talked about Christ's deity and humanity on display in his, his person. And in 3 1, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a holy calling, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. You can go back to 4.14. This idea of the high priest of our confession is, is saying our confession, our faith, our life is dependent upon this one being our high priest. This confession is a question of who, not merely what. And notice the modifier of this high priest. He is our great high priest. Great high priest. Great is emphasizing this is no ordinary priest, but the high priest without equal. He's unique in his power and supremacy. Our, our passage this morning doesn't expound on his role as high priest, but I do think it's important as we're speaking of Christ as our high priest for you to have an understanding of what it means to be a high priest. So look down at verse, or chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. The author is going to go ahead and, and teach us the role of the high priest and show how Christ fulfills that role perfectly. But just for our time this morning, I just want to give you three requirements for a high priest in chapter 5, 1 to 4. So an outline within the outline. No need to, to get bogged down here. But I, I want you to understand this role. First of all, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, we see that the high priest must intercede for man and offer a sacrifice for sins. Look at 5.1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. Now, 1A there is looking at the role of intercession. This is one taking from among men 
and then appointed on behalf of men and the things pertaining to God. So the role of the high priest is interceding for the people, taken from the people to represent the people to God. In the second half of the verse, you see he has a purpose here in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the role of the high priest is the role of offering atonement on behalf of the people. Uh, The second thing I want you to see, the second requirement for a high priest, is that he must share in the weakness of the people, verse 2 and 3. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness, and because of it he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. Now, this is speaking of high priests in general. This is just the office of high priest. Notice in in verse 3, they're obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for themselves. This is a sinful high priest that needs atonement to be made on his behalf. But what I want to point you to in verse 2 and 3 is that this high priest is sharing in the weakness of the people. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided because he himself is also beset with weakness. This high priest is actually able to represent his people well because he knows exactly what they are going through. And then the third thing I want to show you about the high priest is in verse 4, and that is that he must be selected by God. 5.4 says, And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. This taking honor for himself, the idea of appointing yourself to the position. It is to say, no one appoints themselves to be high priest. No one stands up in the congregation of Israel and says, all right, I have uh, nominated and declared myself to be the new high priest. I will represent you. I will uh, offer sacrifices. No, this is something that God appoints. You, You see that at the end of the verse. He receives it when he is called by God. God is the one who appoints the high priest even as Aaron was. You can go back to 4.14 now that you have a, an understanding of this role of high priest. This role of high priest to uh, intercede for man and offer sacrifices for sins, to share in weakness and to be selected by God. If we study the whole book of Hebrews right now together, you'd see Christ fulfills this office perfectly. And the author here wants to point to the fact that Christ is the great high priest. He is the high priest without equal. We must cling to our confession because we have a great high priest. And then notice the next thing we see about him who has passed through the heavens. This passing through the heavens is is not speaking in heaven spatially in the sense of the skies, the atmosphere, outer space. It's not as though Christ has passed through those. This is speaking of, of the transcendence of Christ. Unlike the earthly high priest who who passed through the outer courts and passed through the holy place into the holy of holies one day a year to offer atonement on the day of atonement. Unlike those who passed through this earthly place, Christ has passed through the heavens and presented his own spotless blood at the very throne of God. It's showing the transcendence of our high priest. This is no ordinary high priest, just offering atonement for himself and for the people and has to redo his offering every year because those sacrifices were all insufficient to cover the sins of man. The author here is pointing to the supremacy of the high priest and emphasizing there's no need for another. This is our great high priest. 
I think this reasoning is so important for the audience the author is writing to because these are Jewish believers looking back at their life in Judaism, Judaism and re- remembering they used to have a high priest that was there right in front of them, beset with the same weakness, able to represent them. They could see that priest representing them. And there's a temptation here to conclude that it would benefit them more to have a priest right in front of them, even if it's a, a man beset with sin like them. The author tells them here, no, his, Christ's absence from our view is no disadvantage as compared to a priest in the line of Aaron. Rather, it is of every advantage that Christ is our high priest. Why? Because he's passed through the heavens to the very throne of God and he intercedes for us there. We see later in the book of Hebrews, his sacrifice has been made once for all. He doesn't need to offer sacrifice again for sins. And he didn't need to offer sacrifice for himself because he is without sin. So these believers would be comforted here. They don't need a high priest right in front of them. They have a high priest who is at the right hand of God. Furthermore, in John sixteen seven, Christ told his disciples, It is to your advantage that I go to the Father so that the Helper will come. He is indicating here, it is to the believer's greater benefit that Christ ascend to the right hand of the Father and send His Spirit, and He intercedes for us there at the throne of God, and His Spirit ministers to us here. No earthly priest could offer what our great high priest offers us. This is motivation for us to cling to our confession because we have this high priest. The author then amplifies the name of our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Notice, Jesus, the Son of God. This title emphasizes both the humanity and the deity of Christ in perfect harmony. This title perfectly combines the assurance of power that comes in our high priest being the Son of God and the assurance of sympathy that comes in our high priest being Jesus A completely man and also completely God at the same time. He was indeed born of a real woman and really grew in her womb and really came into humanity as a real baby in the most humble of circumstances. He was fully man and at the same time, this is the Son of God. Not partially man and partially God, but full deity and full humanity. And this had to be so in order to accomplish his redemptive mission. Commentator Philip Hughes says, being both truly man and truly God, he alone is qualified to bridge the gulf between sinful men and man's holy creator. I love this. His deity assures the power to help us and his humanity assures the sympathy to care for us. And that sympathy leads us right into verse 15, where we see the second reason we must cling to our confession, the sympathy of our high priest. The sympathy of our high priest. This high priest ministers in heaven, has ascended to the very dwelling place of God, and there continues to perform his ministry on our behalf. But notice verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Verse 14 began by telling us what we do have. Look at the beginning of verse 14. Since we have a great high priest. And then verse 15 tells us what we do have or we do not have. Negatively, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. 
Do you hear what would be in the minds of his readers? Hearing of the greatness, the transcendence, the supremacy of the high priest, they might be tempted to think, yeah, God the Son really can't relate to me. You know, I don't, I don't have very much in common uh, with, with God the Son, the e- eternal second member of the Trinity, the one who spoke all things into existence, the one who, according to Hebrews 1.3, holds all things together by the word of his power. I can't, I don't think he can relate to me very much. That's where the author corrects our thinking in verse 15. It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This is incredible. Not only is our high priest supreme over all others, transcendent in his greatness, he is able to sympathize. Just in case you were afraid, his exalted status as God the Son would keep him from being able to relate to us in our weakness or or care for us in our frailties, the author now shows us his sympathy. This term sympathy is based on our common experience. It, it always includes the element of active help. Uh, so consider uh, the, the uh, ability and willingness to actively help because you have shared that same experience. This is not limited to the mere psychological notion of feeling. Just saying, oh, I, I, I feel bad for you in that situation. I can't imagine what it would be like, but I, I, I feel like it must be difficult. No, Christ is able to know our exact situations. This is not to say that Christ has experienced every possible situation in his earthly life. Every type of temptation we'll see in a few moments. Our great high priest is intimately familiar with our human weakness and the temptation that our weakness invites. He is able to feel what we feel and offer us the help needed in that moment. There's a musical term called sympathetic resonance. This is where instruments that are tuned alike will actually pick up on the vibration of the other. So if you have a, a, a tuning fork tuned to, to concert A and you hit the A note on a piano, that tuning fork will begin to vibrate or resonate with that same tune, that same note. This is sympathetic resonance. That, that idea of sympathy, Christ feels what we feel. He knows the, the condition in which we find ourselves because he is a man. He's a real man at the right hand of God pleading on your behalf. He knows your condition intimately. This should comfort our hearts, beloved. The one who is at the right hand of God interceding for us knows our condition because he has shared in it. We'd be mistaken to think that this great high priest cannot represent us because he cannot relate to us. He is indeed united to us in his humanity. Because he is fully man, there is no question of his ability to sympathize with our weakness. In becoming man, he experienced our weakness entirely. Hunger, thirst, being weary and tired, sleeping, being burdened, praying, weeping, and temptation is what our passage alludes to. This temptation, I I believe we need to to dig into a little more because temptation itself is neutral. It it does not indicate virtue nor sinfulness. It is rather the virtue is seen in response to the temptation, not the absence of it. There's no problem with Christ being tempted until we enter the theological dilemma of James 1.13. You're familiar with James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. There's a theological problem that comes up in this passage where we consider these truths beside each other. God cannot be tempted with evil. In verse 15, our high priest has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, of course. How can Christ be both God and genuinely tempted at the same time? Theologians have offered many solutions to solving this dilemma, and I do not feel the need to offer all of those to you today. Uh, But I I do think it's important whenever Scripture presents a tension, whenever Scripture presents two things that are both absolutely true, and, and in our finite minds we struggle to reconcile how can they both be true simultaneously, my exhortation to us is that we leave tension where the Scripture leaves it. We go as far as the Scripture takes us. We do not stop short of where the Scripture takes us, but we do not go beyond what the Scripture gives I think Pastor Mark exemplifies this so well for us in that when he has been teaching on the necessity of faith, he's been accused by some of being Arminian and neglecting the sovereignty of God. Then you get into a passage on the sovereignty of God and everyone fully affirms, oh, he is, he's right there, full, affirming all that God has said. That's exactly what we must do. We must leave tension where the scripture leaves it. Never stop short or go beyond. I believe the best way to solve this tension I'm going to borrow from uh, a theologian named Bruce Ware who handles uh, this issue so well in his book called The Man Christ Jesus. In chapter 5, he deals with Christ's temptation. He emphasizes that Christ never stepped outside of humanity to escape the weakness of humanity. He never, he never used his deity to escape his human weakness is the emphasis here. Uh, just think about Christ facing hunger. The temptation that would come in Matthew 4, 40 days of fasting, and yet he entrusted himself to the will of his Father in everything. Could he have created food in his stomach and immediately removed any difficulty of hunger? Absolutely. We saw Christ create food from nothing in the, the, the boy's lunch as he fed thousands on the hillside. Christ could have certainly made the molecules form within his stomach to satisfy his craving by nature of his deity. But, so important to note here, it is in his humanity that he he endured all temptation. He fought the temptation as a man by yielding to the word of God, by yielding to his Father's will perfectly. Fully God and therefore entirely holy. And I, I do believe there's a sense in which you could say, as God, it was entirely impossible for him to sin. This is a, a theological category called the impeccability of Christ. Was it possible for Christ to have sinned or not? Uh, there's uh, certainly, I, I believe, biblical grounds to indicate in his deity he could not have sinned. But I don't think that question's helpful for this passage. Let me explain why. I, I believe it's so crucial for us not to get hung up on the question of could Christ have sinned? Because what that does is, is remove all the weight of the fact that he was tempted in every way as we are. Like our passage says. What we have to do here is ask the question, why didn't Christ sin? It's actually a distinct question from the reality that Christ could not have sinned in his deity. We ask, why didn't Christ sin? Listen to Bruce Ware on this issue. 
It says Jesus was genuinely impeccable owing to the fact that in the incarnation it was none other than the immutable and eternally holy second person of the Trinity who joined himself to a full human nature. Nonetheless, this impeccability of his person did not render his temptation inauthentic or his struggles disingenuous. How so? Jesus resisted these temptations and in every way obeyed his Father, not by recourse to his divine nature, but through the resources provided to him in his full humanity. It's so important. Let me illustrate it the way that, uh, that Bruce Ware does in his book. He gives the illustration of a swimmer. Imagine a swimmer who wants to break the world record for the long swim. This is somewhere in the nature of 70 miles. So he, he trains diligently and is going to swim 70 miles at one time. But he, he recognizes that there is a danger in undertaking this task that he could easily cramp up. And it, cramping in the midst of this long swim, he could drown and die. If his muscles seize up or if he's overcome with cramps, it could mean drowning. So he decides he'll have a rescue boat follow him the whole way. He's traveling a short distance behind so as to save him if he gave out. This boat would be close enough to save him and far enough away so as to not intervene if they're unneeded. And that in our illustration, the day of the swim comes and the entire, he swims the entire 70 miles and breaks the world record. You ask, why could he have never drowned? And you'd say, because of the boat. It was there to save him if, if he, he stopped swimming. But that's a distinct question from why didn't he drown? The boat just floated. Ultimately, it didn't contribute to his success at all. He didn't drown because he swam the whole way. I hope you see the distinction in those two questions. When we're asking, could Christ have sinned? It's actually not helpful for this passage. But when we ask the question, why didn't Christ sin? Now we're seeing why it's so helpful that we have Christ who did not sin as our sympathetic high priest. When Christ was tempted, and we'll see in a moment, in every way as we are, he overcame not by nature of his deity. Just think of Philippians chapter 2 where, where it speaks of Christ as, as being equal with God. The exact form of God, yet he didn't see his, his deity as something to be grasped or plundered for his own personal gain. But instead he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bond slave, by being born in the likeness of men. You hear that? He did not use his deity to accomplish righteousness, to battle this temptation. He went through in full faith as a man. Christ accomplished righteousness as a man, enduring the fullness of temptation and always fully and faithfully yielding to the Father's will. Back to our verse. It says, Christ is one who has been tempted in all things. This doesn't mean the Lord's earthly life, he was placed in every possible scenario that anyone could ever possibly be tempted. You say Christ wasn't married, Christ was not a woman, Christ did not have children, all these uh, different situations you could think up. It is rather the idea that Christ experienced temptations in every area that is, that is inherent to human weakness. Temptations to pride and selfishness and revenge, and greed and lust, materialism, doubt, fear. We can go further and say of Christ's temptation that his temptation was beyond what we face. How how is that? Because Christ never once gave in to temptation to feel the relief of what it would be to give in to that temptation. 
that weight just built more and more upon the sinless Son of God as He endured by faith as a man or was never released from the pressures of temptation for the Lord. He had to continually endure under it. Never once giving in to temptation, He bore the full weight of sin, the full weight of temptation. He's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Now we consider Christ being tempted in all things, yet without sin, and he endured in his humanity. Now suddenly it means so much to us when we consider he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Because Christ has faced all of these temptations, all of these difficulties, and yet he endured without sin. Christ not only can sympathize with you and I, knowing our weakness, He also knows the strength, the faith that it takes to endure through those temptations. That brings us to verse 16. He also overcame every temptation, so he not only can sympathize with us, but offer us strength and weakness. We see in verse 16, the third reason we must cling to our confession is because of the support of our high priest. The support of our high priest. Verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That therefore carries so much weight when you consider the sinlessness of Christ enduring as a man through faith and yielding in his Father's will. Therefore, because of our sinless Savior who is able to sympathize with us, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Before the cross, in the Levitical system, the high priest was only permitted to enter in the sanctuary of God's presence once a year on the Day of Atonement. He would go into the Holy of Holies, and the the people could never enter into the presence of God. Only that high priest is only the atonement of Christ, the sinless lamb that could open the way for sinners to approach this holy place where God dwells. This was dramatically symbolized for us on uh, the day of Christ's crucifixion when the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is this symbolizing? That now man has access to the holy place, to the throne of grace that we see in our passage. Verse 16 reminds us of this reality. Sinners like you and I can and must draw near to God through Christ. This exhortation is the same way we saw it in verse 1. Let us come or let us draw near. But this is in a present tense. And the idea is let us continually, it is binding on us as long as we live, we must continually draw near, come to God in worship. Not only can we draw near, I think that would be incredible enough, but notice the prepositional phrase, with confidence. This describes an open boldness to come before the holy God. How could a sinner come before a holy God with open boldness? Only by Christ's perfect sacrifice could this be a reality. Notice the throne that we're approaching where God is seated is described here as the throne of grace. Let me just point to the throne first. Throne is, is symbolizing the sovereignty and power of our God. This is the ruling and reigning God of the universe that we're approaching here. 
This is his throne from which he declares what will be, and it is. And notice how this throne is characterized, the throne of grace. You could interpret this to be either a throne characterized by grace or a throne from which grace comes. I don't see any distinction between the two. A throne characterized by grace is where grace comes from. So either one of those works for me. The idea is this. You and I can come with boldness because God's wrath is satisfied and his grace is lavished on us because of the finished work of Christ. Because we have Christ as our high priest, you and I can come before him with boldness. Yet we so often lack confidence to come before the throne because we are painfully aware of our own sin. Rightly so. Our, our sins, they are many, we sing often. There's a song based on this text that reads like this. It gives the exhortation in the first verse. Come boldly to the throne of grace, ye wretched sinners come, and lay your load at Jesus' feet and plead what he has done. But then the one who's being called to that objects in the second verse and says, How can I come, some soul may say, I'm lame and cannot walk. My guilt and sin have stopped my mouth. I sigh but dare not talk. And the response in the song is, Poor bankrupt souls who feel and know the hell of sin within, come boldly to the throne of grace. The Lord will take you in. I love that because it just shows certainly our, our hearts are, are seeing our sin. We're not blind to that. The scripture reveals it to us. And that does not keep us from the throne, but rather because we know his throne is characterized by grace to us, because of the work of Christ, we do draw near. And we don't just draw near reluctantly. We draw near with boldness because we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. So we draw near with confidence. He then gives us the purpose of our drawing near. It's not just that we're drawing near to worship. We're drawing near to be equipped so that we could indeed live and walk in victory. Notice the purpose at the end of verse 16. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the purpose for which we draw near to the throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's start with mercy. He's saying that there's an ever-flowing stream of mercy from our God when we come to His throne in Christ. Mercy depicts our need for forgiveness. It is uh, approaching the throne of God, recognizing there is something in us that would keep us from this throne, and we need the mercy of God to be able to approach Him. It says mercy for past failures. This is, this is pardon so that we can approach Mercy indicates the Lord does not give us what we deserve in our weakness. He doesn't treat us the way that our sins deserve. And this mercy is what believers need when our weaknesses seem overwhelming. Are you overwhelmed by your own sense of unworthiness to approach the throne of grace? Be reminded that when you come to the throne of grace, you are here to receive mercy. Not only can we receive mercy, he also says, to find grace to help in time of need. This grace is a, a grace that results in opportune time, particular to the need of the moment. It is, it is appropriate for your specific needs. Uh, grace, as we've seen in our study in Romans, is undeserved favor. It's not a, a paycheck that you earned. It is a gift that you have been given, a blessing that you receive. And this grace results in timely help. Literally, you might translate it this way, 
fine grace resulting in well-timed help. This is acknowledging our constant need. God is not just willing to show us mercy in our weakness. He is willing to give us grace when we are weak so that we would be strengthened, so that we would have victory in our battle against the flesh, so that we would be able to follow in Christ's example and entrusting ourselves to the will of the Father. Through our great high priest, we can draw near, and there is a continual source of grace that helps us in our weakness. If you find yourself weakened, by the battle with sin and grievous trials. Ask yourself, are you coming boldly to the throne of grace where your great high priest has given you access to the Father, where you can receive mercy and find grace for timely help? Certainly our weakness is what causes us to run to our mediator to come before the throne of God so that we would receive mercy and grace. But it is that that acknowledgement of weakness that leads us to the source of strength. So I, I encourage you in your weakness, come boldly before the throne of grace through Christ as your great high priest and you'll be met with God's mercy and forgiveness and his grace to help you in your weakness and temptation. Do you realize that we desperately need the high priestly ministry of Christ? I remember when I first came to Christ in, in high school, I was arguing with a Catholic friend of mine over whether or not we needed a priest. I was like, you don't need a priest. You can talk to God on your own. But I, I think that was showing an ignorance on my part of something. I do desperately need a priest. I just don't need a priest who's a sinner just like me, who is a man who has no greater access to God than I do. I need a great high priest, like we've seen in this passage. I need Christ. It is through him that I'll receive mercy and find grace that I need to steadfastly cling to my confession. Christ Jesus, the God-man, is at the Father's right hand, ensuring that we have all we need to successfully persevere in faith. This is such an encouragement for those of us that know our our, our neediness, our weakness, We come to Christ for grace and it results in well-timed help. We must understand that victory for the believer is not achieved by finding something deeper in yourself to battle temptation. The reality for for us is not that we need a a greater sense of self-reliance in your own strength, but rather, rather a greater faith and dependence on Christ. We do not fail because we haven't done enough of our own spiritual push-ups Our failure is due to the fact that we do not draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and and receive the abundant supply of mercy and grace that the Lord bestows on, on His people. We shrink back. We stop considering Christ deeply. We stop clinging to our confession rather than drawing near. And we think it's because we lack some golden nugget of truth. You'll meet with people for discipleship and someone will think there has to be this this missing golden coin that I need to really get sanctification going. Uh, Can you tell me what the secret is? Secret is humble faith. But by Christ, go to the throne of grace and plead for mercy and grace and the Lord bestows it greatly. And in reality, our failure in sanctification is due to this lack of drawing near. This doesn't remove the necessity of striving, but emphasizes the necessity of faith all the more. Self-reliant pride will keep us from the throne of grace, whereas humble faith will result in coming to his throne with confidence and being richly supplied with all the spiritual resources we need to cling steadfastly to our confession. 
We have a transcendently great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Therefore, let us cling to our confession and draw near to the throne of grace where we will be helped. Let's go to his throne now and pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we have a great high priest who transcends all others, who is currently right now seated at your right hand who has offered a sufficient once-for-all sacrifice of His own blood that makes full and final atonement for all of our sins so that you would say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we marvel that we can come before Your throne of grace with confidence. I pray that that our hearts would indeed be fueled with boldness this morning as we see the the mercies of our great high priest on display and all the benefits that come and in your wisdom in giving Christ, appointing Christ as our high priest. So we come to you acknowledging our past failures, seeking pardon and mercy and acknowledging our desperate need for continued grace, seeking your power for sanctification. So Lord, give us mercy and grace now at your throne. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.